This morning, if you would, uh, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John with me. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. We are going to uh, consider the uh, first 18 verses of the text. We'll pray, then we'll read the text, and then we will uh, take time to exegete the scriptures that we will then make applications from. So let us pray together. Father God, we come this morning to rest. To rest in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, our Sabbath, our work of righteousness done through Him. We come with thankful hearts for the gift of salvation. We come with thankful hearts for the gift of your Holy Spirit imparting and enabling us by grace to once again be reformed, be renewed, be sanctified this morning by your Holy Word. We ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to us this morning according to your benevolent mercy that you have toward us sinners saved by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let us read John chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there, uh, had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may, come, may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the powerful, life-changing gift of God, his word. As we get started this morning, I want to take a moment to give you the shape of the next section that we are beginning in John's Gospel this morning. Chapters 5 through 7 are the larger section in which we see growing hostility between the Jews and Jesus. And then simultaneously, we're also going to see a progressive revelation of Jesus uh, Christ as God's obedient Son. 
The growing hostility is initiated here as Jesus and the Jews dispute the Sabbath. In chapter 6, verse 66, we see that even some of the disciples abandon him. Jesus is charged with demon possession in chapter 7, verse 20. The authorities attempt to arrest him in chapter 7, verse 30. And in verses 19 and following in chapter 5, Jesus reveals himself as the obedient Son of God. Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. He is the only true manna that can give life. Chapter 6, verse 51. And in chapter 7, verses uh, 37 through 39, Jesus reveals that in him is the only supply of the thirst-quenching spirit. So I want also this morning, this is, this is, I, I have a, a big, uh, task here this morning because this text is jam packed full of stuff that if you would allow me to preach for two hours this morning, I could do it. I could maybe accomplish, uh, getting all of the nuggets out of this text, but we probably don't have that kind of time and I don't have that kind of breath probably. But um, I, I do think that one of the topics that we are going to discover in this passage is important to talk about on the front end of it. Um, and I'm not going to give you an exhausted, uh, exhaustive discussion of this, but I want to discuss a little bit about the heart of the Sabbath, which is the point of opposition between the Jews and Jesus in this text before we get to the exposition of the actual text itself. So with that... Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14 says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. I say that to say this. Our lives are frail and fragile. A person can only go without food 8 to 21 days. Only 3 to 4 days without water. After 3 to 4 days without sleep, a person can begin to hallucinate. And the longest recorded time without sleep is 11 days. See, we can offer to God only our frail, fragile, temporary selves in His service. You see, we need to understand this, that God does not need food, we do. God does not need water, we do. God is not susceptible to the elements, we are. God is not destroyed by sin, we are. God is not dependent upon anything outside of Himself, we are. God does not need to be rescued, we do. God does not need healing. We do. God does not need sleep. We do. God does not need rest. We do. So back to the point of why I read Psalm 103. For He knows our frame and He remembers that we are dust. Praise God indeed. One of God's gift to His people is the principle of the Sabbath, the principle of rest. James 1, 
Verse 17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Jesus' own teaching concerning the Sabbath in the Gospel of Mark affirms that the Sabbath is a gift from God. Chapter 2, verse 27 through 28 of the Gospel of Mark says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what is in conflict in our passage is that the Jews have an inordinate relationship to the Sabbath. See, the Jews had neglected the Sabbath as a gift. And they made the Sabbath itself that keeping it was the prize. Not receiving it, but keeping it was the prize. The prize to be won. If I, could, if I just kept keep the Sabbath and keep all the rules, I, I have attained the prize. I have attained the gift. And this, of course, this keeping of this Sabbath is a pride-filled, self-righteous work, right? This is a, a pride that, that, that comes from this keeping in adherence, thinking that it itself is the prize. The keeping of it is the prize. Not the rest and not the principle that God had given them, that following the letter of the law, then they lost the heart of God and the principle of the Sabbath. And then, as thus happens, it made the leadership then say in themselves, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It was the leadership of the Jews who decided that they were to be the Lord of the Sabbath, not the giver of such a great gift, right? But the keeper of that gift then became the Lord over the Sabbath. So here we are. Uh, let us look a little closer at uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here it is, we are setting the scene, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem at the time of a Jewish feast, and the feast is not clear in this text what feast it is. They don't make a point of that. But what, what will become clear in this text is that John foreshadows what is soon to take place. Remember what he foreshadowed in John chapter 4, verse 44? A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So this is starting to come to fruition here. Jesus here comes upon an invalid, a man for 38 years, has sat by this pool in need of an intervention. Right? This invalid man needed an intervention. Well, as we study the text, I don't know what version you are following along with, but if you're following along with a version that is not the ESV, you may have noticed that I did not read verses 3b and 4 because they are not included in the ESV. You might ask why. Well, the answer is this, that this information that is in those verses was added after the earliest manuscripts um, to help explain what is being said by the invalid in verse 7. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So, 
it was a, a afterthought to explain what that meant in the Jewish mind, but it was uh, a, an extra biblical understanding that the, that the Jews had. It was not a notion that the Jews had received from the scriptures. And so therefore, uh, it was in some following manuscripts, but not in the earliest. So that's why it is not there. The sick man here is waiting for the waters to be stirred up, you see, according to their tradition, that uh, an angel of the Lord uh, would come and stir up the waters, and only the first one that would get into the water would be healed of whatever affliction they had. So here the sick man is waiting on an intervening angel, and then someone who might have compassion enough to uh, help him and assist him into the stirred up water so that he could be healed. See, the sick man believed in a false narrative that would save him. He believed in a false notion of something that would save him. A healing, though, that had not come for 38 years in reality. And in reality, it's this. It would never come and never could. Because what they believed was not according to the Scriptures what might happen. It's not what those waters did. So, I want us to think about this as we think about the rest of our text this morning. Here are some false narratives, some false understandings that some Christians today uh, still put their trust in, but they are simply not confirmed by the Scriptures. Here's one. God will never give you more than you can handle. How about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who first help themselves. There's a David in each one of us that if we have enough faith, we too can slay the giants in our lives. See, these well-meaning statements cannot stand up to the clear teaching of the Scriptures. Each one of them negates our dependence upon God to intervene in our weakness. God will often give us more that we can handle. Often, so that we will turn from self-reliance and put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself promises in John 16, in this world there will be trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There is trouble, but put your faith and your trust in me. I am the overcoming Savior. Jesus says in John 16, 33. If we could indeed clean ourselves up, we would not need God to change our hearts. It is God's work to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, friends, Psalm 103. He knows your frame that you are but dust. If self is the solution to our need, guess what? We are looking to a broken vessel. We were looking to a broken vessel to try to help us. God, indeed, helps the helpless. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are humbled enough by the authority of God and the authority of His Word to say, I'm undone. You are holy, and I am undone. I am helpless unless you, God, intervene. 
I am hopeless, God, unless you give me hope. The point of God raising up David to face the giant in Israel is this, that God Himself will raise up a champion to fight the giants in His people's lives. Not that if you, you've got a David in, each, in, in you, and that if you just rise up in strength and have faith, you can defeat all of your giants. No, the point of that is that God Himself will raise Himself up a champion. And God has done it throughout the text of Scriptures, doesn't He? Moses. He raised up Moses, a champion for the people. He raises up David, a champion for the people. And he raises up Jesus Christ from the dead for his people. He has raised up a champion who conquered sin and is conquering death, right? He raises up his champion for his people. He raised up Jesus Christ, heaven's champion, it is heaven's champion, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin through his atoning death and God raised him from the dead. And he then is our champion who intercedes in heaven all the time on behalf of God's chosen people. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed here we see another divine appointment. We see a divine appointment like the woman at the well. The divine appointment, just like the woman at, well, at the well here, is by sovereign initiative. It is Jesus in the sovereignty of God that initiates this healing of this man by the pool. Do you want to be healed? The question he poses. Like the woman at the well, Jesus sees the man who had been an invalid 38 years. I see you. Like Jesus, like, like the woman at the well, like Jesus knew Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 47, like we have seen then in chapter 2, like Jesus knows the heart of all men. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knows what is in man. See, Jesus sovereignly initiates the encounter with, and he knows the sixth man's physical and spiritual condition. And so thus he poses this question, do you want to be healed? When we look at that question, on the surface, it seems like a total no-brainer, doesn't it? Of course the sick man would want to be healed. He was lying there looking to be cured. But if we think about it further, this is a loaded question. It's a loaded question, especially considering this, that he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. This question implies this, I know your heart. And here's another question that it implies. Do you know the full extent of your condition? It further implies, I know your great need, and it goes far beyond you being put into a pool. Your need is greater than your physical healing. And if you were completely healed from this malady, your spiritually bankrupt condition will still exist. So, 
posed this question to this man. Do you want to be healed? When we think about this question and we pose this, we should pose this question to our unbelieving family and our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving neighbors as well, shouldn't we? Do you want to be healed? This has an implication for all of those relationships. Often our friends and our family and our neighbors, they confide in us when their own little world falls apart, don't they? They know that you have faith and you have trust in God. And when their little world falls apart, sometimes they come to you and they come to me. And they come seeking help for the position that they have found themselves in. They've come to understand that their sin has found them out and that the consequences of their lives are now in front of them. And they come to us and say, can you help me with this issue? And they're looking for healing and they're looking for help. We need to communicate to our friends and family honestly concerning their true condition. We need to ask this question sometimes when they come with these very trying circumstances and ask this question in a loaded sort of way. Well, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Well, of course, they would say, that's a stupid question. I came to you with the problem, didn't I? No, but do you really want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from your relationship issues, my friend? We then would answer to them maybe some good advice for healing that condition, and we would really then do them no heavenly good. We would address their problem, but do them no heavenly good. Because they're still in need of healing. They're still in need of redemption. You put a band-aid on something that needs a tourniquet, right? They're still in need of help. We need to communicate with them. You know, as bad as your situation is, friend, I empathize with your condition. But you know what? It's far worse than you can imagine. Your condition is far worse than you even know. I empathize with you and I understand that it's, it's a struggle. And I go through struggles myself. But your condition is far worse. Far worse than you even know or can imagine, friend. You see, neighbor, God is holy. There is your first problem. Here's your second problem. You do not recognize him as so. In fact, I might even be talking to your mother. I was thinking of her as I was preparing this message. I was thinking, in fact, Mom, you are guilty of cosmic treason against the Creator. You are guilty of cosmic treason against the Creator of all humankind. Before we give the prescription of Jesus Christ's death, we must be honest with our differential diagnosis. To our friends, to our family members, we must give a differential diagnosis of their spiritual condition. We must be honest about that condition. You see, a person will never see the good news as good until they realize just how really sick they are. They will never see good news until they realize they are just really that sick. We might say, do you know, friend, that you're worse off than you think? Here's how, here, here's the reality of your spiritual condition, friend, family member. You're dead. 
You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then we might pose the question that Jesus posed to the invalid here. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And this is what Jesus' sovereign initiative, calling of the invalid man. The sovereign call is expounded upon later in chapter 5 in verses 28 through 29. I want to read this because this has the long-reaching question of what the sovereign call from God is. He expounds upon this, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection and judgment. You see, Jesus is calling the man. Do you want to be healed? You see, all are called, and we need to call everyone. All are called, so we need to call everyone. All are called to repentance and faith. But what we do is we leave the choosing up to God's sovereign will. But we need to call all. Calling all people to salvation. You know, as Jesus came down the path, remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as He comes down there and He's walking down this path, He says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That, is, that was a call to anyone who had ears to hear. It was a call to any and everyone who could hear it, who would hear it and believe, right? That's our call. We don't know who God's choosing. We call them all. We call them all. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is real and is alive and is reality. And when we call and make this call, this is the moment of ultimate crisis, right? It's the ultimate moment of crisis in a person's life when we honestly proclaim, proclaim the gospel. Repent and believe unto eternal life or remain as you are and receive the justice of God. You're not going to receive anything you don't deserve, right? Repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God or then you get what you deserve, justice of God. And this justice of God, you have no excuse. It's inexcusable. You have committed cosmic treason against the holy God, and you will get justice. So here's the question to this man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Let's listen to his response. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps before me. Well, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. See, at first, the sick man's response to this question, Do you want to be healed? At first blush, it seems like he's pathetic. But in reality, his answer is not pathetic. It's it's but apathetic grumbling. It's but apathetic grumbling. It is as if he is saying, Sir, what do you think I'm doing here? Today is just like every other day. I am without help, and unless someone else comes here to get me and put me in the water, today is going to be just like every other day. This is a stupid question. Jesus has compassion on this disgruntled, disgruntled, hard-hearted man. 
And upon his words, he commands the sick man to take up his bed and walk. You see, for us, we must remember this, to not be disheartened when our friends, our family, and our neighbors reject us, reject our calling them to be healed. Our trust is in God's sovereign will to, to choose them for salvation. It may break our hearts, but like Jesus, we need to show compassion, for He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are but dust. I would like to have expanded upon this passage a little bit more, but I realize that I just don't have enough time to do it. But what I would like you to do maybe is jot this down if, you, if you're a note taker. Compare the invalid's healing here with the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. Compare the response, and you'll see what I mean about this guy is apathetic. He's a grumbler. And he doesn't really receive the healing that Jesus offers. He's physically healed, yes. But he doesn't receive Jesus for who he is. So, that's just something to stick in your mind, because i got a lot to unfold here. So, uh, let us uh, look forward to chapter 9, 5, uh, verse 9, uh, the second half. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? See, it was likely known to the Jewish leaders that their kinsmen here had been in uh, dire need for 38 years. It's likely they knew that. When they see the sick man was healed, you know what? They don't marvel at the miraculous. They don't marvel and say, Oh, look, you can walk. We've seen you lying here for 38 years. That is amazing. That could only be a work of God. They don't say that. No. They don't marvel at the miraculous. They do not inquire of him. They, they do not inquire of him. How did you get into the pool? You were in need of somebody to put you in the pool. How did you get in the pool? Who put you in the pool? They don't say that. They don't say that at all. These men instead have a, pers a perverse relationship with the Sabbath. Their relationship with the Sabbath was that they were created to be a people who kept the Sabbath not as a gift from God, but as a people who earned their position with God through their own self-righteous works. We Jews, brothers are the Lord of the Sabbath. It is unlawful for you to take up your bed. And then, of course, the principle of the Sabbath was lost. Because the principle of the Sabbath, did you know that in Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 3, the, the, the law of the Sabbath is simple. It's very terse. It is one verse. So you know the book of Leviticus is all about laws, right? But the whole heart and the simplicity of the Sabbath is summed up in this, in Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is the Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. That's the simplicity of the Sabbath. The principle was 
that you work at your occupation for six days, and on the seventh day you don't. On the seventh day you rest from all of your normal work. Work that you were occupied with. Work that you were occupied with for the purpose of taking responsible care for yourself and for your family. The Jewish leaders tell the healed man who's violating the Sabbath by carrying a mat. Well, this carrying of the mat was no strain for a healthy man. For a healthy man, it was not work to carry the mat. And they say, you have violated the Sabbath because uh, this, in their minds, said, you, this is constituted work. In fact, expounding on the simple principle of resting in God, See, they were to trust in God's work for God's people. That's the reason to take a rest, friends. We toil and we strive because that is, you know, we, and, and our minds and our hearts get occupied with doing all that we can to provide all that we can for our families, right? And to provide for ourselves. But in the seventh day, by taking a rest, what do you say? You say, God, even though I do not labor today, I trust that you will provide enough for me. I trust in your provision, God. I trust not in my own work. I trust in your work. I trust in your work through me. You see? Now, they were simply to trust in God. Well, the Jews added 39 rules pertaining to what constituted work. Okay? So remember, Leviticus 23.3 says a man is to take, after six days, on the seventh day, take a rest. It's a holy convocation. It's a day to set aside for the Lord. It's a day to take rest from all of your works and to rest. So, the Jews added 39 rules to what constituted work. These are extra-biblical works of the Sabbath. And they put this, they've codified it into what they call the Melakot. 39 rules for rest. Here they are. I'm going to ramble them off to you. You cannot burn nor dim a flame. Modern interpretation of that, because we have some modern Sabbatarians, a modern-day Sabbatarian Christian, that's what they would call themselves, a Sabbatarian Christian. Well, this means that they can't turn on or turn off an electrical appliance because that constitutes burning or dimming a flame. Carrying, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, or marking. Can't even mark anything. Constituting work. See, Sabbath keeping for them was labor in itself. Right? It was a labor to remember all the, the, the laws and the rules. You had to get to work so you didn't work. You had to make sure you were working at not working. Right? It seems ridiculous to us, doesn't it? See, the Sabbath was a labor itself. And it was a labor that Jewish leaders accounted themselves righteous for having kept it, right? It was a work that they said, we are righteous because we keep this, all of these laundry list of things. 
The Jewish man's reason to trust in their salvation is that God uniquely made us to keep the Sabbath. Remember that Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And therefore, the Son of Man, the one who fulfills the Sabbath, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let us look again at verses 11 and 12. Uh, but he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The healed man responds to the indictment of the Jewish leaders that, that he has violated the Sabbath. And, and he responds like this. This is why I say this guy is a knucklehead and compare him to chapter 9. Okay? He is a knucklehead. This healed man, he says, I'm not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. You see, the one who healed me, it was his word. And his command that I walk with my bed this day. You see, this is not a boasting in Christ as we would do. As we would boast in Christ's work for us, right? This is not how this appears. Although he is saying this, it is the one who healed me. It was his work and his command that I take up my bed and walk. This is blaming Jesus. This is blaming Jesus for what the leaders accuse him of. The leaders, supposing they themselves were the Lord of the Sabbath, asked the healed man to name names. Who told you to violate the Sabbath? Who told you to violate our authority? Who told you that they can determine what constitutes work or not on this day? Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. You see, the Jewish leaders and the healed man, they have a common problem here. They have some common problems that are manifested in different ways. And see, both of them deny the righteousness and the righteous work of God. Both attribute to the work, the work of Jesus to something other than God. The Jews do not recognize that the healing of this man can only be attributed to the mighty hand of God as a gift. Because they're worried about the fact that this guy's working. Because he's carrying a mat. Right? They don't look at it and say, this is the mighty hand of God who has been at work in this guy. They deny the righteous work of God as a gift. They deny the principle of the Sabbath as a gift of God, not a burden to bear, not a burden to inflict upon the people. The healed man uh, neglects to even inquire of the name of him who healed him. Think about this. He doesn't even know who he is. Who is he? Do you not think that if, if you were in his condition, well, you guys have been in his condition. I have been in his condition. Dead and separated from God, and he healed me, he healed you. If that be true, you know his name. You know his name. His name is Jesus Christ, right? And we come here to glorify His name week in and week out, right? That's our purpose. We know Him. Could you imagine this man being healed and not knowing who it was? Not knowing His name. See, I think this guy is not someone for uh, sympathy. This guy is apathetic. He just doesn't care. He's just hard-hearted. This is a hard-hearted man. So, he doesn't know. He doesn't know who it is. They deny the principle of the Sabbath. He 
neglects to inquire the name of him who healed, and he attributes Jesus' work to law-breaking. He equates Jesus' work of healing him to law-breaking, and he is, in his mind, just a scapegoat for the accusation that comes to him. You see, both of these uh, groups of people, these Jews and this healed man, are guilty of blasphemy. Both parties attribute the work of God to someone other than God himself. They attribute it to something else. The Jews would attribute the work of God to self-righteous works. Right? They would attribute salvation and righteousness to self. Self-adherence. Self-keeping of the law. Right? It's in themselves. He would say, this is, this is a violation of the law. This Jesus. Well, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may come upon you. See, Jesus finds this man in the temple, and he, knowing what is in man, knowing the depths of this man's spiritual malady, warns him. While you may be healed physically, friend, unless you repent and believe, you have an illness that is leading you to death. That's really Jesus' warning here. You may be healed physically, but unless you repent and believe, you are still sick. You are in a condition that if you do not repent and believe, it is leading to death. So at the risk of losing your attention and by, uh, at the risk of being repetitive, before we give the prescription of Jesus Christ's death, we must... Be honest in our differential diagnosis of our friend or our family member's spiritual condition. As I said before, you will see that you see that the good news is not good. It is not good until somebody realizes just how bad the bad news is. You don't, you don't get a prescription for something unless you know you're sick, do you? You don't just go up and have the doctor give you a prescription and say, here you go, you should take this. But I'm not sick. You should take it anyway. Right? How, how much more is that true when we share and proclaim the gospel to our friends, family members, and neighbors, right? We tell them that Jesus is love and he died for sin on the cross and all of that sort of stuff, right? We've given them this prescription and they don't know they're sick. We've got to show them the reality of their spiritual condition the real malady that they are under, and that you and I can attest to that, that I too was once sick and dead in my trespasses and sins. And I don't know how this happened, but one day the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and I believed. And I am healed. I am healed. I'm not what I'm going to be one day. I'm not what I'm going to be yet. But I'm being healed day in and day out by the love of God. Right? That's our message. That is our message and our hope. Verse 15. The man went away and he told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. Think about that for a second. That's the guy. Right? That's the guy. Do you think if they knew that, if he knew and he had been spiritually healed, he would not have went to point out who Jesus was to those guys. 
knowing who they were and what they were about. But here he comes in verse 15. You see, that's the guy. That's the guy. It was this guy who healed me. And verse 16 says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, from this text, I want us to get this, is that unless you're born again, you will only respond to the gifts of God's work of righteousness in Jesus Christ in one of two ways. And we see these two side by side here. Indifference or indignation. Unless you be born again, the response to the gospel is either with indifference or indignation. No doubt the healed man loved the gift of physical healing, yet he responded to the giver and the healer with depraved indifference. In his hard-hearted condition, he leaves Jesus' warning of repentance. As we just saw, he warned him. But he leaves this warning to point out Jesus to his accusers, indifferent to the righteous work of God in Jesus Christ, indifferent to the gospel command to repent and believe. You see, when our friends and our family members and our neighbors respond with indifference, it behooves us, like Jesus does, to warn them. To warn them that an indifferent response is still a response. And that what remains for them is an illness for which no worldly anecdote exists. This is the condition. If you are indifferent to the gospel, you're ill. That's what we need to say. You are separated from God and you need healing. And you can go look all around the world for all kinds of things to placate your problem. But there is no antidote for this lest you repent and believe. Lest you repent and believe. We have to warn. As we look again at verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus doing the righteous work of God on the, on the Sabbath, the work from which, see, Jesus, he does this work. And he does work. And he's the worker who never rests. He's the worker who never needs a break. He never needs a break. And this work that Jesus does should inflame us to love. But what does it do to the Jews? It inflames their hearts against Him because they are self-righteous. It inflames them in opposition. Righteousness belongs to me. It is as if these Jews are a lot like my beloved grandmother who often said this. I know better. Think about it, This is what they're saying. I know better. And in their, in their statement of I know better, it was a bit of ignorance and obstinance, wasn't it? I know better. You know better than God. I know better. I know better than you. I know better than you means I'm hard-hearted and I won't receive truth from anyone. I know better what work is allowed in God's holy day, these Jews might say. I know better. I know better what pleases God. How dare you undermine our authority? We Jews do not work on the Sabbath. We do works of righteousness on the Sabbath. We are the gifted ones. 
We ourselves are the teachers who impart the gift of the Sabbath keeping to our community. See, we may have friends, family members, and neighbors who respond to the gospel this way, don't we? They might respond by saying something like this, Don't tell me I need a religious crutch to lean on. I know better. I know better how to live my life than some ancient book. I need no one to govern my life. I can make mistakes myself just fine. I know better. You see, our Father in Heaven is always at work. He is working righteously in the chaos of the world that we live in. Jesus Christ is never at rest. He is interceding in His righteousness on behalf of His chosen people. God the Holy Spirit never takes a break from convicting the, sin, the, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Never takes a rest. Because the Father is working all things together for good for those who love Him and are the called, we can rest. We can rest from trying to think that there's some righteousness in us, in our own effort, that's going to somehow placate the wrath of God. No. The work of righteousness is all Jesus' work. And we rest in Him. And then we become instruments of God who works righteousness in us, right? And that righteousness that is worked out in us, we do just as we sang in the song this morning, right? There's only one place praise can go. There's only one place boasting can go. We can only boast in Jesus Christ's righteousness. Even though we might do acts of righteousness, we are then but just an instrument of God's work in us. And we boast in Christ's work through us. That's what we boast in. We boast in Jesus Christ. And God is never at rest. He is working all things together for good to those who are called. And also this, we are commanded to rest. Jesus Christ is our rest. He is our rest from self-righteous works. No matter how hard you labor in self-righteousness, you will never enter His rest. You will never enter the rest that He wants. Jesus is your rest. Sinful man, sinful woman, sinful Jeff. Do not respond to the words that you heard this morning with hard-hearted indifference. Please don't respond to these words with indignation, my friends. We should remember the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Enter the rest of Jesus Christ through obedient faith, obedient trust. Rest in the righteous work of Christ and remember this work. And the work that Jesus has done and the work that He has called us to enter into, the rest that He has brought us into, it's a gift. It is a gift. Can you boast about a gift? a gift. Enter into His rest. Enter into His work. You see, because our works according to Isaiah are but filthy rags. Outside of Christ, our works are but filthy rags. They are but sin that has manifested itself in self-righteousness. Right? And here is the diagnosis 
and the antidote for the world and for your friends. Here's the diagnosis and the antidote. For the wages of sin is death. The antidote. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that the prescription came first. I mean, the, the, the diagnosis came first. The wages of sin is death. That's the diagnosis. The antidote? The antidote is God has given a free gift in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. It's a gift. There is no boasting, friends. There is no boasting. But you know what there is that's really cool is this. There's no boasting, but you know what there is? Praise, right? There's no boasting, but there's praise. I think that amongst all the people in the world, this should be the room that is filled with the most joy. The most joy you could ever see. Not happiness and stupidity. I'm not talking about going around being stupid and with a big smile on your face like everything is hunky-dory and not being upset about things, but I'm talking about joy. I've been given a gift. That's the joy we should be walking in all the time, right? And I'm, I'm not saying this from a position of, I got that all together, because, you know, often I'm like a little bit of a grumbling little guy who's laying down by the pool too, right? Grumbling about my condition. When my condition is pretty doggone good, when you think about it, when you think about it, the wrath of God has been lifted from me because of Jesus Christ. I received a gift, and here I go through the world some days just grumbling about my condition, how horrible I have it, right? Man, we got it good, guys. We got it good. We got it really good. Let us take just a moment of silence to reflect on God's words so that it has its full effect in us. And thank you, Father, for your holy word. I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us all these truths that we heard from your scripture this morning. We ask for your grace to enable us to walk in them this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.